This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to Cyclist Magazine podcast. This week, we are joined by the amazing Lael Wilcox. But before Lael joins us in the hot seat, we get to catch up once more with James. Wow. I, what, I, they, we, we, you, everyone else out there gets to catch up with little old me. I'm not really sure if uh, much of, you know, of note has been going on in my life, except for, you know, life admin, the actual living of life that isn't cycling bicycles. Like, for example moving really heavy furniture from one city to another. I can I can give you yeah, give you a few tips on that. Number one, have a little bit of polyfill in your back pocket because you will take out some of the wall. <laughs> Me and James have basically had the same conversation off air for I'm gonna say two to three months about him moving house. So yeah, how's that going? And it's just been greeted with a mixture of contempt and frustration every time I ask him about it. Well, I mean, you, this is, you know, so I'm talking to a man who used to be a lawyer. I know a lawyer is not a solicitor, but there's a lot of very, very talented people in the legal profession. And there are a lot of absolute, insert another word, idiots. I can't, <laughs> it's just, it's just insane how poor people can be at a job and still keep it and how much money I end up paying them. But on a slightly different note, you can tell me some interesting stuff because you're not in the UK. Well, I mean, you never are, are you? Because you, you're stuck with Europe, you clever sod. But we we are in very different places. I'm in England. It's very cold. And you're in? I'm in beautiful, sunny Girona. It's cold, but it's difficult to feel sorry for me because it is basically cycling paradise. It's perfect roads it's like a little scale electric set for cyclists you can go in any direction and there's just amazing roads almost an unnecessary amount of roads like if a car doesn't pass you for 90 minutes you gotta wonder was that road ever necessary to link those two places together <laughs> i mean okay yeah cycling is great but i think the real reason that people go to girona is for the game of thrones walking tour um, so I'm assuming you've done that. Have you done that with your little app headset or with one of the local guides? Uh, no, I've been walking around looking for a microphone stand and that was kind of my own version of the Game of Thrones walk, except much like your housing uh, debacle, it was filled with a lot of frustration and contempt for the Spanish retail industry. <laughs> Did people chant shame as you walked around and point at you? <laughs> shame, shame. Well, I mean, look, you've got, I can see it. You've got a microphone stand there, I think. It's just quite short. You're fine. You got a table. The Spanish do tables. Over here, though, you get something called Girona Isis. It's the roads are so perfect, and there's such an abundance of training partners, mostly at a level that's miles ahead of me. But you just end up riding not too little, as happens in Ireland, the UK. You ride too much to the point that you have chronic fatigue and can't function in normal, everyday, polite society. <laughs> Does that mean sort of sitting around at dinner, looking around the restaurants, just got loads of... Have you ever seen that film, actually, Bellevue Rendezvous, the cartoon? No. Is, but check it out, it's brilliant. So you've got this um, cyclist, and he's exactly like the Brian Holm model for the best cyclist. You're unmarried, and you live at home with your mum until you're 30. So it's this guy, and he sits at the table, his mum cooks for him, and he's always got this little turbo trainer under the table, and he's eating it. <laughs> he's pedaling all the time, and he's got like these incredibly... You know the deep wells of pain that cyclists get for eyes after a while. The, the better you are, the deeper your eyes sit in your skull, I think. So he's this kind, he's that kind of guy. And yeah, there's this kind of morosity, 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 when he's sitting around eating, kind of like looking 
sadly into his food as he slowly shovels it in just to be able to make the next kilometer. I feel the modern day incarnation of that might be Jack Ultra Cyclist who we've had on the podcast. I bumped yep. into him the other day and he has the sunken eyes, like he has that look nailed. He's defining that look. But you, I don't, it can't be healthy. It really can't, because it's, it's something to do with like your, I imagine like the technical scientific explanation is your brain shrinking, isn't it? Because you're so dehydrated all the time that your brain is, is getting smaller. Like, you know, when you get a conker and that weird bit inside it dries out and it starts pulling back on the retinas. So I'm assuming it can't it can't be safe to be like that, even if it does mean you're fast. Well, definitely from my like anecdotal observation of Jack, having seen him before the Everest year of Everest and the million uh, vertical meters, and then seeing him almost at the end of it, like he's a shadow of his former self. So it it doesn't look healthy. Don't try that at home, kids. <laughs> Have you ever, has, is Everest thing something that has ever piqued your fancy, especially Absolutely lockdown? Absolutely not. No? Like, no, no, it's just, it's insanity. I seen Jack the other day and he's like, oh, we must go for a ride. You should join me for an Everest. Uh, I was like, absolutely not there's nothing even social about it because riding up a hill is hard it's kind of broken conversation and then riding down a hill it's so windy you can't even talk and you're normally single file so it just seems like torture yeah well the thing i don't get about it is just going just the, the meditativeness of cycling is is fantastic and you can lose yourself in even kind of like the most boring environment but something like that it tends to be done where you just, you just don't get that time to actually like kind of zone out, do you? Because you've got to think, that's what people say, you've got to think on the descents, right? So you can't you can't just sort of shut off. And then it just becomes so repetitive. Like, do you know Rainbow Road in Mario Kart? I just imagine it's like that, like the most boring track where it's just really long. I don't think there's a better segue to introduce Leo Wilcox to the podcast than Rainbow Road in Mario Kart. So with that, let's welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Leo Wilcox. Leila Wilcox, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Leila, I was thinking about my first adventures on the bike. And I remember I used to have these very narrow confines that my parents would set where they'd be like, you can't go beyond the end of the neighborhood. And one day, I it was like a weekend. I remember packing up my little backpack, my snacks, and I was just determined to break free out of this like boundary zone they'd set. And I disappeared for like 10 or 12 hours. And that, I was just hooked on adventures and cycling then. But can you remember what your first adventure was? On a bike or just in general? Either or on a bike preferably, but it's a cool <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I guess on a bike, um, well, I, I started riding just to get to work. And then, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So I was riding to get to work and never had a car. And then I, uh, at the time I was in university and I wanted to visit my sister who lived in the next uh, city over, which was like 80 kilometers away. And I usually took the bus, um, but then I didn't have money for the bus. So I was <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think I can go. And then I was like, you know what? I could ride my bike there. I could try. I had a fixed gear. Uh, I went to the school library and printed out directions. Um, <laughs> and then I really, I really didn't know if I could make it, but I was like, I'm just going to try and see what happens. Um, and it, and it was during that ride that I was like, oh my gosh, if I could ride to the next city, I could, I could ride across the U.S. And that was the, the next logical step. And that was then immediately like my obsession. I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I wanted to do it immediately. 
uh, I was like, I'm going to finish school. I was in my last year of university and I was like, I'm going to finish school and then I'm just going to start. But I didn't have any money at all. Obviously, I couldn't even pay for the bus. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I didn't have money and I knew I didn't need much. Um, but I went home to Alaska, saved money for the summer and then went on my first bike trip. And that was in 2008. Um, and then kept going from there. When you say when you say school in America, that means university. Is that the approximation to us? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I know I know one thing about university in America, um, other than the fact it's called school, which I've just learned. It's it's really <laughs> expensive, and yeah. it rather sounds like you went straight from doing something really expensive. What were you studying, by the way? Chemistry and French. Wow. Okay. And then you started riding your bike. What did everyone? <laughs> what did your mates and your parents say? I mean, it was cool. It was so, I think I thought it would just be one trip. I was like, okay, I finished school and now I'm going to go on like one, you know, adventure. And then I'll probably come back and go to medical school because at the time I thought I would become a doctor. I think I wanted to become a surgeon. And then I started riding my bike. Uh, and then for a few years after that point, my mom would ask, you know, once a year uh, when I was going to go back to medical school, <laughs> and I would just say, oh, maybe later, you know, <laughs> and then I just never did. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just got more and more kind of sucked into the cycling world. But I mean, the other part about it is that I never thought it would become a profession or a career or something I could get paid to do. I mean, at the time, so I would ride for six months. The first trip I think was three months. I rode down the East coast of the U S ended in Key West, Florida. And then I was out of money. And so I got a job as a bicycle taxi driver, uh, and worked in a restaurant and then did that for, I think two months until I saved enough money to hit the road again. But for the next like seven years of that, I would work for about six months a year and then ride for six months a year and and, and live off rice and beans. <laughs> and it worked. Lael, just to pull at the parenting string, which James started pulling at, is there anything you think your parents like values or qualities? Is there anything they taught you that you still draw on now to get you through these extreme endurance feats? Yeah. I mean, one thing I think about, so this was like a few years into, uh, just the riding for travel. And I told my mom, I was going to go, I was going to start a ride, you know, in Northwest U S and then ride down into Mexico. And then my mom was like, well, you know, there are roads all the way down to South America. You could just keep going. <laughs> and I was like, That's so cool. You know, it's like, I mean, I thought going to Mexico was like a huge trip and enough. And, and then, you know, I think, I think my parents are kind of dreamers too. And they get inspired by just the, the fact that this is possible to do. Um, so I think that that really does, that's what gets me excited about these events in the first place is I look at a map and I'm like, wow, this is incredible that I can actually travel this distance on my bike and it's all linear on a map. But then you're like starting to imagine what, what's it actually going to be like when you're there physically. Um, so I think, you know, that's what really gets me started. And then, and then I get into these events and I'm just like two days in and I feel horrible. And I'm like, well, I, I used to think this was a good idea, so I better just keep doing it. So when you, when you say these events, we're talking ultra distance events, but we're talking like ultra, ultra, ultra distance events, not just like a little bit longer than your average sportive. And you do them incredibly well. So 
In 2016, you won the uh, Trans Am race outright. You beat all the blokes, everyone, and that's 6,800 kilometers, 7,000 kilometers. Yeah. Which is just insane. And you've added to that various records at the Tour Divide, um, the Arizona Trail. You know, these are events that, you know, run 2,000 kilometers plus. But what was, what was the first one of those types of events that you did? And how did you prepare or rather possibly not prepare for it? Yeah, the first bikepacking. So this is self-supported, carrying my own gear. Um, and that's the style of racing I do now. The first event I did was in 2015 in the spring. And it was at the end of uh, like a nine-month bike trip um, kind of around the world. And I was, I just, by that point, I was in Israel in the Middle East and I was riding this route um, called the Holy Land Challenge. And I realized I would still be there when the race was happening. And so I thought, you know, I had started meeting people from the community and they're like, they're so excited about this race. And I was riding the route and it was very beautiful and, and really, really cool. Like a good mix of like ancient cultural Israel and then the desert and uh, the Mediterranean. And so I was like, well, I'll just give this race a, sh a shot and see if I like it. And yeah, so I just had, you know, my travel gear and show up just looking so kind of ragtag at the start line. And these guys are like, are, is you, are you joking? Like racing in tennis shoes and a really low end beat up bike. And I was like, well, you know, this is what I have. And, um, but I did like immediately at the start of the race, I just started sprinting as hard as I could. And the race is like 1400 kilometers, but I was like, what's there to lose? You know, I was having like the time of my life, you know, and then I'm sprinting and I'm like dying. And then I'm sitting behind a bush eating a sandwich and these guys are passing me. And then, um, and, you know, it, we're just all kind of going for it. And then, and then in the end of the first day, you know, everybody kind of stopped to sleep or to eat or whatever. And I just kept riding until three in the morning. Um, and I, at that point was 40 kilometers in the lead. And then I wake up three hours later and just keep going. And then, you know, these other, these guys wake up and their friends are calling them. They're like, she's way out ahead of you. And I was like, and that's when it really clicked to me that I was like, I love this, you know, because it's like, you can do whatever you want out there. And, and that was like fun and exciting to me. And I love the, the competition aspect and, and kind of the unknown of, of these challenges. And I realized also that, you know, it's like, I got tired, but I, I still felt pretty good. And I wasn't, wasn't that tired. I still wanted to be out there even with very little sleep and, and pushing myself really hard. So I'm guessing there was, you know, you caught a lot of people um, with your incredibly explosive tactics, let's say, um, and enthusiasm <laughs> by, by surprise. Was, was there, you know, joking aside, was there, I'm assuming there'd be some kind of hostility towards, towards you, probably partly because I bet most of these people are blokes and partly because I bet most of these people consider themselves very serious seasoned riders and it's not cool to get shown up by someone who's, you know, turned up in, uh, <laughs> turned up with a full length toothbrush and they haven't cut the handle off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I didn't really have like a, a negative response until kind of after the race happened. And it wasn't really from the participants. I think it was more from like the I think it was like a very polarized reaction to this because I did really, really well. So as I was riding, like 
we have spot trackers and that's how you can tell where people are and people can come find you. So I had like Israeli fans coming to find me out there just to like verify that I was real. But I think that was in like a positive sense. They were so excited that I was doing this and they couldn't believe it was happening because like culturally women are just not really athletes there. Uh, It's kind of interesting because they're very progressive as far as like women in business and women intellectually, but physically like women are not really supposed to be like these athletes. So for them, that was very strange, but it was really like, like women would come find me and they're like, like it was a huge breakthrough. They're like, you're doing this and this is incredible. And and then even the guys I was racing with, they were like, actually for the most part, really good to me, but just also really blown away that this was even possible. Um, but I did find out like after the race, there were like these kind of weird cycling forums where these guys were like, you know, basically discussing what I was doing, but in Hebrew. So then I would have to Google translate (laughs) what they were saying. (laughs) And it was stuff like, uh, you know, there's no way this is physically possible. She's like a genetic mutation or (laughs) like I'm like X-Men for doing this, you know? And then I'm finding out like, like all this weird stuff. And I was like, you know, it was my first experience. And I was like, what is, what is happening? But so I think it was, it was a strong reaction, both good and bad. Um, and I guess I learned a lot because that's, you kind of continued to be the, um, the way people react to what I do mostly positive. And then there's always going to be like this small corner of the cycling world that just hates it. But Lael, you talked about the tracker, the live tracker. And for anyone who's not familiar, a lot of the ultra endurance events, there's not cell phone signal at all parts of the course. So tracking and race results rely almost entirely on these little trackers that you place on your body or on your bike. But is there something a little scary about having a tracker on you and you know, being alone in a forest or a desert and people can show up and literally you're unprotected, tired, possibly dehydrated. It's quite a vulnerable position. I mean, that's definitely something you could get paranoid about that. Like some psycho is going to come find you. But the reality is like these races are so remote. It would be very hard for them to access the route. A lot of the time, not for the Trans Am. I mean, that was all purely on road. So anybody could really get there. But like a lot of these, it's, it's hard to actually get to the course because it's on a small trail you know, you have to connect like a road system to trail to, to find somebody. So you got to be determined stalker to find you in Badlands. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so this is actually funny. The first race I did, um, in Israel, I had one of these trackers and we had terrible weather, like flooding. And part of it was you had to cross this river, um, and the river was like flooding. So I started crossing it. And I went down, like down into the river and I actually like almost lost my bike. Like I saw it going away and I grabbed it and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my bike. And through this um, experience, I killed the tracker because it was, I guess, underwater for too long, which is also a really bad sign that you can kill these things because it's like, well, then what's the safety of it? (laughs) You know, if somebody gets lost in a river. Um, But anyway, so I killed the tracker, but I was like, I didn't know because I'm not like paying attention to the tracker. I'm just trying to get through the course. So I continue up like the next mountain. And then uh, 
And then two fans were like watching the progression and, and they came down to try to find me at the river and they just found each other. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like off to the next, you know, bakery at that point. Um, But yeah, you know, people can come find you. Generally it's positive, but I I guess at this point um, I rarely actually stop even if somebody comes out like that, unless it's like a little kid or a woman. If it's just some weird dude, then I just wave and keep going (laughs) because sometimes they are weird. And I'm like, I don't want to waste time. And, um, you know, like one time I had a guy waiting for me or like biking towards me from the other direction. And then he like stops and he's like, Hey, you're Lael. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, want to have a chat? And I was like, well, you could (laughs) ride next to me, you know, and we could talk then. And he's like, nah, that's okay. And he just kept going. I was like, okay, well, if it's not worth it to you, then it's definitely not worth it to me. You know? So I think, you know, it's like somebody could make like a grand plan to get you, but that would be pretty weird. Uh, but that, that also brings up another point where it's like, because in these races, you are so sleep deprived and so kind of exhausted in every sense, you do start getting kind of paranoid about weird things like that, or like a a paranoid in general. Um, so I, I try not to go into those kind of creepy dark places because that could be pretty overwhelming. But I'm, I'm going to press you on some of those creepy dark places today, just because uh, we, Anthony and I were chatting about um, you know, how far we'd, um, we'd ridden before. And I've the furthest I've gone in one go on a bike, and I didn't ride the next day, and I probably didn't ride for another week, um, was 400k, which just put me in, in a weird, weird place where of kind of weird sort of like middle of the day sleep deprivation almost trying to find new mm-hmm. positions on the bars that hadn't been discovered by mankind yet for my hands because <laughs> nothing was comfortable and seeing if it's possible to cycle with one eye closed and one eye open and if that counts as a half sleep but having spoken to people that do proper events like yourselves there's jenny graham springs to mind who's a scottish um ultra endurance cyclist and she said that you know she's had times where she's just thought there's you know she can see bears she's in the middle of the night she can see bears or she opens a tent door a tent well doors (laughs) a tent flap and is just absolutely sure that there's snakes writhing around outside that kind of sleep (laughs) level of sleep deprivation like how how does that fatigue affect your your mental state personally like where have you kind of gone to on a really long distance ride. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a, on a cup a few occasions I've gone two nights without sleep. I Badlands was one. Everybody didn't nobody slept. Uh but I've also done that solo on like time trials, which is even weirder because there's nobody else out there even, no other racers. Um so I did that for uh one time trial on the Arizona Trail. I went two nights without sleep. Um, and you definitely, I definitely start hallucinating, but mostly like, it's not like I see things that are absolutely not there. I just see things like they, the first sign is like stuff starts moving when I know it's not moving like rocks. Second sign is like inanimate or like basically like plants or objects start becoming people. (laughs) (laughs) I like look over and I'm like, Whoa, is that a bent over old lady? And I'm like, Oh no, it's just a bench or like a cactus (laughs) is a person. Uh, I, 
uh, on a race in Spain in May, I started seeing like, this was actually kind of cool. Like everything started like sparkling and glittering. And then <laughs> everything started becoming like circus animals and people and dolls. Like just, just basically like bushes are becoming like people and dolls. And I was like, wow, that's so weird. But I think I've done it enough that I'm like, that's not real. Just enjoy it. You know, cause you're like, it always happens like at night when it starts. And then, uh, and then you start thinking, wow, my mind is really getting weird out here. But that's, I don't mind the hallucinations when you start feeling like, like you're just, you just want to sleep so bad and you can hardly keep your eyes open. That's definitely tougher to deal with. And usually for that, I will just pop over and like, one time I like closed my eyes for seven minutes, you know, and then it made like a world of difference. Uh, I think particularly I get really, really sleepy on descents because you're not really actively moving as much. And then that's actually the most dangerous time you could get really tired. So I try to manage it. I had Sophie and Shelley on the Roman podcast and he had a hilarious story of the darkest hallucination he ever had. He was racing in the Italian Alps in like June, I want to say, a warm time of year. And it was nice. And he'd gone two days without sleeping at this point. And he turned a corner at nighttime and he said it was just white out, like snow everywhere. Couldn't see anything. Couldn't see the next corner. So he kept riding. Then it got to a point where the snow was too deep. He couldn't ride anymore. So he's pushing his bike. And he could see a corner in the distance, but he said he was pushing his bike for like four hours and he didn't get any closer to that corner. And he's like, the corner is like not, I, I can't make progress. So he said he walked for like another two hours and still didn't get any closer to the corner, which he perceived to be like a couple of hundred meters away. And then he said he just had this moment of clarity where he thought, oh no, I've died. And this is purgatory. You have to push a mountain bike in the snow <laughs> in Italy for eternity. So he said he gave the next few hours pushing his bike, assuming he was dead until he got a WhatsApp from his wife. And then he had this <laughs> weird conundrum, like, oh, how come I can get WhatsApps in purgatory? This is so bizarre. Yeah, he's like, this is the loophole. I can still <laughs> communicate with my wife from death. <laughs> That's really out there. Uh, I've never gone anywhere close to that. Um, I, I guess the other thing for me, though, really is like, if... I also kind of obsess over like effective progress. And I'm like, if I'm really not making progress because I'm so tired, then I should probably just sleep a little bit because like then the overall picture is, is a better result. Like, you know, it's a balance, right? It's like, how fast are you moving versus if you slept, would you move two, three miles an hour faster? Is it worth that hour of stop time? You know, and I actually cared the most about like, first of all, I want to have fun. Second of all, I want to have the best result I possibly can. So if that includes a little bit more sleep, then, then I'll definitely take it. And I think anything beyond, like, I know people are not sleeping for five days or whatever, but for me, anything beyond two nights, it's not going to be effective. You know, I have to sleep some and, and also enjoy it a lot more if I do. That is an, that's an excellent point I'd like to pick up there because I, I, I mentioned to uh, my partner's parents, that um, I was going to be doing this podcast today. Um, you know, 
they cycle a little bit. They understand notions of distance and endurance and stuff, but no, had not re- ever really come across the sorts of endeavors you're doing. And the first question, I've heard this a lot, and it's one that sprung, you know, sprung to my mind when I first came across ultra uh, distance events, the unsupported type particularly, is when and how do you sleep? How do you decide when to sleep? And when you do sleep, where are you sleeping? Yeah, when I got into this, I was, first of all, super poor and a huge dirt bag. So I would just sleep like in a ditch always. Uh, Actually, the first time I raced the Tour Divide, so that was my first year of racing, I slept outside uh, for 17 nights in a row and I didn't shower the entire time. Nice. Um, well, and is that like in a in a bivy bag or a tent, or are you just like just get off your bike and lie down? For that, I had a sleeping bag and a bivy bag, um, and that's it. And it was actually it was actually good, but I was also like, uh, well, of, of course, I don't want to spend money on staying somewhere. But I also thought if I um, have to check into a hotel, I'm going to waste time checking in. That was my rationale, which is, I mean, I guess. Yeah, you spend a little bit of time, but then I've learned like over time, you know, you you don't have to pack and unpack your stuff. Uh, you get better quality sleep. And at this point, now I have to charge electronics. I have electronic shifting. I have a GPS I have to charge. Um, so having access to power is good. But that at that point, I had a flip phone and a GPS that used batteries, like actual AA batteries. So I didn't have any need to ever be inside um, and, and it worked. Um, but yeah, so I've kind of gone back and forth now. I, during a race, I'll, I'll stay in hotels maybe once every third night. Um, but it really depends on the race because it's also like, well, I don't know internationally always how to like book a hotel and get in there late. And, and then I'll sleep for, you know, four hours when I'm there, take a shower and charge my stuff. Um, but yeah, it used to, used to be always outside and now it's kind of a hybrid of both. And I mean, the first couple of nights it was hard to get my heart rate low enough to fall asleep sometimes because after riding as hard as you can all day, your heart is through the roof. And especially for me, cause I've really bad asthma. So I'm like struggling to breathe, which also brings my heart rate up more. So that would be like the first couple of nights like that. But then by like night three, I'm like, so dead, I could sleep you know, standing up in a hallway. So I think over time, you just get so, so tired that you all you really want to do is sleep. A good friend once told me, you race on the road and you train on the turbo. But is the turbo trainer the best tool for the job these days? Well, the Watt Bike Adam is a dedicated smart bike to make indoor training more engaging and fun. It's really convenient so you get the most out of your indoor miles. No switching bikes, wearing down bike components or slipping gears. The Atom is a simply a plug-and-play setup with all the data you need to get the most out of your training. It has a smaller footprint than a full turbo setup, so it fits in even the most compact spaces. The first Watt bike was developed alongside British Cycling and was a crucial tool for Team GB's success at the 2008 Olympics, helping to identify talent and quantify it with immense accuracy for training. And the Wattbike Atom Smart Bike builds on that original Wattbike platform to bring industry-leading accuracy and intelligent pedaling analysis and training. These together combine to help riders develop not just power and stamina, but pedaling efficiency too. I love its real-world feel, right down to the Atom's proper-feeling gear shifters, 
Plus, I can connect it to my favorite training apps like Zwift or just plug and play with Wattbike's free workout and training plan platform, the Wattbike Hub app. So claim £250 off the Wattbike Atom today with code CYCLIST250 and apply that at checkout on wattbike.com. That's CYCLIST250 applied at the checkout on wattbike.com. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. What do you think the tipping point has been in popularity for these events in the last few years? It seems like for a long time, like you were starting out, like first time you won Trans Ams 2016, the Holy Land Challenge, I think was 2014. But these were almost countercultural meetups in small little corners of the internet back then. Now it seems to have sprung into total mainstream consciousness. You're in magazines, you're on podcasts, you know, Events like Badlands are almost like quote unquote normal now. I think it's still pretty niche. You know, it's you like think? I still, I think, I still, I don't think it's like something that most of the world's aware of. I think when people hear about this kind of stuff, they're like, that exists. And then it's fascinating because it's like life on the road. Because that's the other part of it is that a lot of these races are still free, anybody could show up. Um, no entry fee, no prize money. So it's like you get such a mix of people. Um, And I really like that. And I think that also goes over to when people hear about these events, they imagine themselves there. And so then they're so like all these questions pop up, like, because they're thinking, what would I do? Where would I sleep? What would I eat? What would I do? You know, what do you need? Uh, And I, I, I think the sport is still kind of in that phase of like, wow, this is weird and exciting and I want to give it a go. And I, I feel like it is kind of maybe starting to transition into more like scientific or more like pushing the limits of sleep deprivation. Um, it's getting there, but it's, it's still not there. It's still just in a phase of like, let's put aero bars on mountain bikes and see what happens. You know, it's like very weird. Uh, which is, which is really fun because then, you know, then people find out what works for them and they have all these different little tricks and it's, you know, a, such a, such a range of equipment and abilities and sizes and people from different backgrounds. And I, I love that, that 
there's not just like one effective way to do this. So do you, do you have, have you begun to apply more science to what you do in terms of, well, I don't know, kind of in terms of anything, but in, in specifically maybe just the basics, which a, a world tour rider or just, you know, a kind of road rider would look at how much am I going to eat? How many grams of carbohydrates am I going to eat per hour? And then beyond that, I guess for you, like how many hours I can ride a bike and then you do some calculations to then work out how much you can ride per day and how therefore how long an event's going to take or you know is is it like that or is it just totally done on feel like how do you sort of structure those rides I just started kind of changing but my basic way going into this has always been okay what's the distance of the route and then I start breaking it down into miles per day what do I think I can average overall you know and then I'm like okay really I take like I want to, I want to sleep for four hours. So then I start reducing time from 24 and I'm like, okay, how much time can I actually spend on the bike? How can I be the most efficient possible to spend the most time on the bike? Because then your average speed would just go up. Time off the bike is what kills you in these events. But I've become so efficient that now I'm like, all right, I'm going to work on other things that will strengthen my results. Um, specifically for next year, because I'm putting all of my focus into next year, racing the triple crown in the U S. So that's the tour divide Colorado trail and Arizona trail in, um, nobody man or woman has won all three in a season and no woman has ever outright won any of those races. So I've got a lot of ambition to uh, go after these events and I'm working with a coach and a nutritionist and I'm actually going to start, or I actually am starting to train for real for the first time ever because I want to be like um, at my very best just to see what I can do. But in the past, I've done everything by feel and everything by like breaking down hours, average distances and, and going for it in that approach. And now I just, for like the tour divide, I want to get faster. And for the trail races, I just want to be a better mountain biker. Um, so I'm going for that for next year. But really, I think anybody getting into the sport um, will learn that it's, time on the bike is going to get you your best result. Uh, but now I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, getting into the finer details of, of what I can do personally. I'm amazed. And you got an early lesson in just how close these races can be. Like your 2016 Trans Am was in ultra endurance terms. It was a sprint finish. It's a hilarious story. Do you want to tell us that one? That race, I, it was, um, my second road race ever. And, I was like, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake because it's road, <laughs> which is such a mistake. I mean, it's so, it was so, so much harder than, than I thought it was going to be. I'd never ridden on flat terrain. I was like, this is really killing me. This is never going to end. And, but I was doing everything I could to, uh, to try to win the race. But from like day seven on, maybe I was in second or third place for a race that in the end took me 18 days. Uh, and then I'm chasing this guy down. And I think by the halfway point, he had stopped sleeping, uh, because he was scared I was going to get him, <laughs> but I was sleeping like five hours a night. And I was just kind of like biding my time, but I'm like, I'm going after this guy, but I've got to stay consistent because this is going to take a really long time. Um, and literally trying to hunt this guy down and then about like three days from the finish, 
in Kentucky, very rural America, very strange place, uh, going into Virginia. And uh, I was like, the only way I'm going to catch him, he's still 80 miles ahead of me. And we've got what, something like 700 miles to go. Uh, The only way I'm going to catch him is if I start cutting sleep. So for that, you know, I sleep the first night, two and a half hours, the second night, two hours, the last night, 40 minutes. And I wake up and I start going and I'm like, I'm going to hunt this guy down. And then I see somebody coming towards me, uh, bright lights. And, and then when he sees me coming towards the other direction, he like turns around and starts riding next to me. And I was like, who the hell is this? It's three in the morning in the middle of nowhere. So I turn and he's riding next to me, not saying anything. But at this point I'd had so many weird people come up to like, see me a fans. I was like, well, maybe he's just a fan and that's just what he does. <laughs> but I turned and I asked him what his name was. Cause he didn't say anything. And then he was like, it's Stefan. And I was like, oh my God, this is the guy I've been chasing for the entire race. <laughs> this was the guy who was in first place, but I didn't know what he looked like because I'd never seen him because he was always ahead of me. I had no idea. Uh, but did you have a moment there where you're like, one of us is riding the wrong direction here. Are you sure it's not me? No, no, I felt good. <laughs> because you know why I knew I didn't do that is because I had done that in Israel in the first race. I rode the wrong direction for over an hour. Uh, And I didn't realize until I ended up in the town that I had passed through the night before. (laughs) (laughs) That's soul destroying. Yeah. So then I was like, after I did that, I think if I ever felt like I wasn't, I was going to be disoriented, I'd like point my bike in the direction of the road. So then I was like, it's that way because I mean, this sounds crazy, but it actually happens a lot because you're riding like a trail or you're riding a road. You're really out of it. You just pass out and then you wake up, you just get on your bike and start going. And then some like GPS is, you know, if you start going backwards, it doesn't tell you you're going backwards. It just flips the route. So it does happen. So this guy, what had happened is we had both slept, you know, I think we at that point slept like, 20 miles apart and then woken up at the same time, more or less. And then he started riding backwards. I started riding forwards. He went like 10 miles backwards and then ran into me and then turns around. So then I find out what is, he like tells me his name. And then I was like, bam, this is the guy. So I started sprinting as fast as I could. (laughs) And we still have like 130 miles to go. You know, we're not even close to the finish, but I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to go for it. And he was looking for like a ceasefire, wasn't he? He's like, let's just roll in together and we'll hand in hand. Later, he said that. So we had been riding, we like sprinted for like 25 miles and then I took a wrong turn. Yeah, I mean like the amount of mistakes you make out there, it's ridiculous. We're like going towards this fork in the road and then I start going right and he's like, it's to the left. And then I turn around and I catch up with him. And then at that point, because he had been like, it's to the left. And then he's like, let's talk. And I, I mean, I just wanted to race. I'm like, I don't want to talk to this guy. I just want to race. And then, and so then I was like, okay, because he had like kind of told me that I was going the wrong way. I like, you know, I was just rolling next to him. And then he asked me if we could just finish together. And I was like, no way. Like, this is a race. I mean, <laughs> If he had been 10 miles ahead of me, would he have waited for me to finish with him? 
You know, it's like this guy's been sleeping for a week trying to, to not let me catch him. So then I was just like, no, this is a race. I want to race. And so then I take off again. And then I think like, you know, half an hour later, I realized I dropped him. He just wasn't there anymore. And then, uh, then my electronic shifting died. No. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. What, what gear did that leave you stuck in? <laughs> I think kind of like middle of my cassette, you know? And then my first thought was like, okay, maybe I should just single speed the rest of the race, you know? And like, but I wasn't riding fast enough. So I was like, that's just not going to cut it. So then I get to, this was still like before daylight. So then I get to like the next town that has lights. And I was like, all right, I got to deal with this. And I had uh, electronic shifting where it was down my seat tube. So then I'm like hiding behind a gas station. Cause I'm like, well, if this guy sees that I have a problem now, he's going to get like a second wind and beat me. So then I'm hiding behind a gas station, trying to like, I had a spare battery and trying to connect the battery. And, um, I couldn't get the old one out but I got a new one in and then I just shoved them both down my seat tube and took off. And so they're like rattling around in there. I mean, like, yeah, I, that's the thing is like, that's why this stuff is fun because like earlier in the race, my other seat post had just broken and I rode standing up for 50 miles to get to a bike shop before they closed. So I could get like (laughs) the cheapest seat post, you know, it's like, all kinds of stuff happens and you have to deal with it. And it takes time, which is frustrating, but it's also like everybody has to do this stuff. Everybody makes wrong turns or goes the wrong way or, you know, makes some kind of mistakes that they have to deal with or their bike breaks. And, uh, at the end of the day, you're like, well, who's going to make it to the end first, you know? And I did, but then at that point I was like, okay, I fixed the shifting. I got back on the bike and then I was like dead set on like, okay, I've got like a hundred miles to go don't make any more mistakes. Don't get a flat tire. Don't blow up, you know, ride consistently. And then I realized like the pressure that this guy must've been feeling for the entire race, because it is actually weird to be in front. You know, you're like, you have everything to lose. If you're in second, you always have like, I could just go get him, and then I could maybe win the race. And that's finally, I had this feeling like I actually might win this race. And then I had this feeling of like, oh no, I can't lose this race anymore. Like now it's mine and I've got to do it. So I did, you know, I make it to the finish five miles from the end. There's like construction that blocked the road and the route. And then I had to take a detour and I was like, oh my God, you're kidding. (laughs) There's a detour at the end of the race. You know, I'm like, is this ever, then I had that feeling like, is this ever actually going to finish? Like, am I, maybe I am in purgatory and I'm just like five <laughs> miles from the finish of a 7,000 kilometer race. Did you get a WhatsApp? That's of, how you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you start feeling like this might never end. And then it, it did. And I was like, and then I was just like, but at that point, you're just like, I just want to be done. You know, like, of course I want to win, but I really, really want this to be over because everything really hurts. Um, so I finished and I waited for the guy, uh, to finish. And he came in like two hours later. So that was it. And, I, and then at that point he was like, he rolls into the finish with like no plan of, you know, where he's going to stay or what he's going to do. So then we like ride to hotel together <laughs> and then have like the next like two days of meals together, you know, cause it's like, well, race is over. And you're like in zombie mode where you're just like, eating food and sleeping. 
That is brilliantly awkward. That, that poor guy having to like, probably do I do I just hang around on my own? I've been on my own for ages. I do get to hang out with another human being. She did just completely whoop me, and now we're splitting the dinner bill. That yeah, that's great. I, but just that point at which you finish, and you just said, you know, it feels tense and scary that someone is chasing you down, and you really want to win, and you've put all this effort in, and you're so close to the finish, and then you do, and you and you've won. And I'm assuming there's kind of no one there. <laughs> You've just got to the end. What kind of fanfare or or anything or not, like kind of is there? Like how how does it feel to to sort of finish something like that and maybe just not probably have any friends or family around, for example? I think there were like maybe 10 people there <laughs> or so, which was actually cool. You know, it was like way more than I'd been spending time with. Yeah, they like cheered. Somebody put out a camping chair. Somebody gave me a beer. Uh, <laughs> you know, people are like, I'm so-and-so's mom. <laughs> but they happen to live in Virginia, you know? So then they're like, their kid was probably like, hey, go see my friend at the finish. And they're like, okay. You know, so it was cool to have like somebody there. But, you know, it also, I don't know. It's like, it's also a really great reminder that, you do this stuff for yourself. You know, it's like, nobody actually cares. Nobody cares that I won the Trans Am. Like nobody cares that I, I won the Tour Divide or they, they don't know the kind of sweat and blood that went into this. And like, it sounds romantic. Like looking at a map, you're like, oh, you're riding across the country. But I mean, like the reality is like, you know, sleeping in a trash bag in a bush and, <laughs> and getting up and riding the wrong direction. You know, that's what we're actually doing out there, you know, like drinking, you know, a liter of milk. I mean, that that just never feels good. <laughs> <laughs> Leila, you've done an amazing job of storytelling and drawing more people into the space that you love. And a lot of the storytelling has been through digital media, where you've been YouTube videos, Instagram, and I know your wife has a huge role to play in this and she's absolutely brilliant at it. But the other side of that coin is you've also taken a lot of criticism for mm -hmm. sort of breaching the unwritten laws of adventure racing where you're meant to be totally out there alone. There's an argument that you're getting moral support from having camera crews out there. How difficult has that been to hear that criticism? Yeah, it's it's been uh it's been hard, you know, because like like the Trans Am, no one was out there. The race organizer and his friend took a few photos, but I don't have any, anything to show from that race besides my storytelling, just telling you this story right now, you know, and I wish I had some pictures from that because it was amazing. Or I wish I, I could have shared that story more or the two times I raced the tour divide the year before. Uh, and so then I, I, had this idea of like, I want to share these stories so people can see what it actually looks like and they can see the beauty of these places. And that was really the motivation uh, to get more people to want to go do this stuff because it doesn't sound appealing to sleep in a trash bag. But then if you put it in the setting of like the Swiss Alps and you ha have somebody taking a video of that or a photo, then people are like, oh, now it makes sense. That's actually really beautiful to be there when the sun comes up or when the sun goes down and to ride through that into kind of, you have to push yourself to have these experiences. Yeah, a lot of it will be gritty and tough, but there will be these exceptional moments. So that was my motivation with sharing these stories. And I can't do it all myself. 
Um, I'm first of all, not a photographer. Uh, and also I can't be in the photo and take it. So, uh, you need somebody else to do that. Um, so I started in 2017. Uh, that's when I actually met my wife. Uh, she worked for a newspaper. So that's kind of her background is photojournalism. And that's also her style of documenting is, is to be a fly on the wall and just capture what's happening. Um, and I thought, well, that's perfect because, you know, bikepacking is a pretty solo sport in general. Um, so if somebody can just capture what's actually happening as it happens and then put it together into a cohesive story and share that with people, that's brilliant. Um, so that's what we started doing and then have had um, some backlash from people within the bikepacking community saying that having somebody uh, take your photo, I, the, the major argument is that it will give you an emotional boost that affects your results, which, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Does it give you an emotional boost? Do you feel uh, like uh, something to look for? Does it segment, the, like, you know, if you have 780 kilometers to ride, but you know you can somehow segment that in your head and say, okay, if I can get to the photographer at 220 kilometers, there's a almost a little bit of mental arithmetic you could do to pass the time? I mean, first of all, I don't know where they're going to be. That's not my job. You know, my job is to actually move forward. And it's actually pretty frustrating for them, for anybody uh, shooting me, because they, you know, they get to a beautiful spot, they set up a shot, looks amazing. And then I don't make it there until it's dark. Or I decided to stop and have a nap. And they're just standing there and waiting for hours and I'm not there. You know, so I actually am, I think when I started, so the first video I made was in 2015 um, and I was doing it. I was attempting to break the record on the Arizona trail. And this was an outside group came in actually from outside magazine. Um, I didn't know any of the guys and it was, uh, it was really weird to do because, you know, it's like you, I'm so focused on trying to cover distance and do the things I need to do. And, and then you put a camera in front of your face and that's very distracting if you're trying to go through a small shop and, you know, buy three bags of chips and a dozen cookies and pack everything on your bike and, and keep rolling to have somebody like following you around was a really, really odd experience. And, um, in that experience, I actually had to quit the time trial. It was a failed attempt. I had terrible breathing problems and I kind of had to face this whole thing of like, this whole project is a failure. And I had to do multiple interviews where they kept asking me questions like, how do you feel about failure? How do you feel about your failure? Um, and I was so frustrated because I had broken the record on the tour divide twice that summer, ridden to the start twice, and nobody documented or shared any of those stories. And then they came in to share the one where everything blew up. And because I was so frustrated, that's when I said for the video, I'm going to race the Trans Am. And that's why I did it is because I had this response from a failure. And then it was like, I'm going to race a Trans Am. I'm going to win. I'm going to do all this stuff. And so then that put me up to kind of the next challenge, which then I was like, fuck, I have to race a Trans Am. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was like I through this first experience where everything went wrong. I was like, well, that really sucked. But then they ended up putting together this really beautiful video that was still like a positive and inspiring story about my failure. And I was like, you know what? It, it kind of made me suck it up and realize like, 
it's okay to be vulnerable and exposed and share these experiences because the overall message is to bring other people into the sport and uplift others. And this was an absolute failure, but I still thought it was cool. And so then at that point, I kind of resigned myself to like, yeah, I may look terrible. I may be disoriented. I may be feeling kind of paranoid, but I'm still going to document these rides because it'll actually share this experience with people and then bring more people into the sport. Um, so that's kind of how I got there. Uh, emotional boost. I don't think so. <laughs> I was going to say, I, to- I totally feel your pain. I've done enough grand fondos and sporties to know that I would need an awful lot of photographs to get me around some of those courses. And I'll tell you another story at another point in time, but the headlines were the only time I've actually probably crashed into a car was when someone was taking a picture of me and the car was stationary and it was the person's car who was taking a picture of me. So that was a, that was a weird situation. So I'm, I'm totally with you. And the idea of, yeah, the idea of uplifting and showing people just what goes into things, things such as cycling and doing, I just think is amazing and is possibly one of the things I think a lot of people are drawn to in older stories about the Tour de France, for example, where there was a lot more of the kind of wacky races sort of thing going on. And now yeah. it's very regimented. So I can, I can kind of see that draw. But just quickly before we go, you mentioned that you're going to be doing the Triple Crown. Where, where and when will that kick off? And how can people watch you um, in your challenge next year? Yeah, so um, the first event will be the Tour Divide in June, uh, second Colorado Trail in August, and third will be the Arizona Trail in October. And I've raised two out of the three. Uh, I won't have anybody documenting my rides, uh, but I will have gear videos, uh, after I finish each of them. And I'm also going to work on animation. So I'll share the stories and then I'll have an animator work to kind of show it, which is cool. I did that once for the Trans Am. Actually, it's in a State Bicycle Co. video. And I loved how the animation looked and I shared it with kids. I went to classrooms and kids would just be like laughing with joy, seeing it all happen. Um, and I thought this is a really cool, different way to kind of share these stories. But yeah, I've already made videos about the Tour Divide and Arizona Trail. So I feel good about showing what it looks like. And now I just want to go into race. That's amazing. They'll, they'll have an amazing holiday period and then back into new coach, all new structure for 2023 and best of luck with the Triple Crown. And we're going to chat to you again soon. Thanks, Leo. Thank you. James, a fascinating insight into what I think the US Marines call uncommon among uncommon people. Yeah. Okay. That's a good way of describing it or just plain, plain mental. I know that's not really a word you're supposed to use to describe people, but you, you kind of get my drift. Um, yeah. I, the distance is beyond my comprehension, even in terms of just what they look like, let alone, you know, to actually travel on the bike, which did get me thinking during it because I didn't really want to kind of compare stats. But, you know, the longest I think I've ever spent on a bike is 400k in one day and it was oh, that's absolutely hor- it was horrible it was absolutely horrible and i couldn't have got up and ridden again the next day you know the way if you run the marathon it's 26.2 mile and so anything after 26.2 mile is technically ultra running yeah do we have like a cutoff in cycling where it becomes ultra cycling uh that is an excellent question and i'm sure google has the answer and pff, i'm just gonna say yes yes i bet there is yes is the answer to that? I've ridden a hundred mile. Obviously, I've ridden. Obviously, yeah. Oh, sorry, I work in. <laughs> I work in. I work in a euro. So one hundred and sixty kilometers, two hundred kilometers. I think I've raced three hundred kilometers. That's the longest I've raced. 
And yeah, that was miserable. But you're in a race or you're doing 40 kilometers an hour. So it's not like you're taking all day. Oh, it's easy. Um, but I've never had anything. I was down to race Badlands, as we talked about a little bit in the podcast this year, but I had a mechanical, which saved me on the first day. That was a 780 kilometer. It would have been, that would have been my most epic. Apart from that, it was like a 12 hour indoor trainer session in the local supermarket, which was much ill advised. <laughs> was that like some charity thing or was just like pitching up, but better sweating the Morrisons and doing it at home. <laughs> the funniest part of it was I ordered a pizza like eight hours in and I was trying to explain to the dude on the phone. I'm like, no, I'm in the middle of the shopping center on a bike. And he's like, well, can I get your address? I'm like, I'm not going to be that hard to spot. Like, There's no other guys around cycling on bikes in the middle of the shopping center. Oh, dude. How, so what do, you, what do you do in 12 hours? Oh, I don't know. It's on one of them. This was pre-Watt bike. Day. There was no Watt bike Adam back then. It was, you remember them old turbo trainers, like you clamp it on, that's like pedaling in the sand. Yeah. Each pedal stroke, you know, there's power at about, the 12 o'clock and six o'clock part of the pedal stroke are just gone and you have a little bit of power at the kind of three o'clock and nine o'clock and then it's just gone again yeah no I've, I've still got one of those and i treasure it it's that's that's the best type of training i think it really develops the kind of power phase and it definitely doesn't screw with your knees at all or your tires or your t- <laughs> yeah i'm actually that i i'm going to end on this that was one of the most scared i've ever been on a bicycle was on a on a turbo train on a balcony smashing it out you know for 45 minutes because that's about all i can manage before i get really bored and then it's like winding down and it was suddenly this almighty bang and i don't know how my tire had just blown straight off the wheel but it was one of the <laughs> it, my balcony's kind of been closed so it was like this ringing tinnitus star ringing in my ears afterwards it and i think that's probably the last time i've used the turbo to be honest except for obviously you know a watt bike atom which does sponsor the show but i've got to say what bikes are uh, I, if i could get one in my flat I'd take a what bike, put it that way. Way over, definitely over the turbos. James, thanks for chatting, folks. Stay tuned. We'll be back at two weeks' time to get the latest update on James' living saga, and hopefully we'll have a positive update then. Hopefully you might see me in a completely different room, Anthony. Imagine that. (laughs) Until then, folks, thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.